It's not through us, it is through Christ. That is our confidence, that's the theme of our message this morning. If you would, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be for the message. Now some of you might be like my wife and I, and you are a list person. You make lists regarding everything. You have a to-do list, a grocery list, a Christmas list, a birthday list, an address list, a honey-do list, something like that, yes? My wife has a notebook, and it probably has a couple hundred different lists in it. Maybe not that many. Close, though. Seems like it. And that, that book, in some ways, is kind of the brains of the operation of our home. Things that we need to do, things that we've done, things that are coming up, that type of thing. I have my list on the app on my iPhone, the Notes app, and I always, I always kid my wife about her needing to upgrade her technology regarding that. But it's handy, you know, it's always with you, you know what's coming up, you can write stuff down, whatever. Today in Philippians chapter 3, if you would look here, we'll read this in just a second, Paul gives us in verse 2, and then in verse 3, and then 4 through 6, he gives us these three lists that challenge us about what we trust in and who it is that we put our confidence in regarding salvation. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In verse 2, we see a threefold description of false teachers. In verse 3, we see a fourfold description of the Christian. And in verses 4 through 6, we see a sevenfold description of false confidence. But before we get to those lists, I want to look at verse 1 to start us out this morning. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now you can tell Paul is a preacher. Because he says, finally, like he's wrapping up, and he's only halfway through the book. It's true. I, I, I feel Paul in that regard. But actually what he's saying here with the word finally is not that he's wrapping things up, because he actually comes again later in chapter 4, verse 8, and says finally again. But what he's doing here is signaling a transition. And it's true. We've been in chapter 2 the last several weeks. And it's been kind of the same theme over and over, the example of Christ and following that, the humility and the sacrifice of Christ. And now he's kind of transitioning. Chapter two was that. Chapter three is filled with the critical doctrinal truths of trusting in Christ for our salvation. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's a theme throughout the book of Philippians. We've seen it several times already. It'll still come up again later in the book, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says this, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. What is he saying? 
Paul reminds them of the same things again and again and again. And he says, it's not grievous to me. I'm fine doing it. And actually, it's helpful for you to hear the same thing again. For those of us raised in church, which I think would be a, a, a large majority of the people here, how much of what you hear taught in church is new, brand new information? Not much, right? Not much of it, because we've heard it many times throughout our life. How much of it, though, is valuable information? All of it. Should be. So that's why we must keep hearing it. And Paul says, for me to tell you the same thing again is not grievous. It's actually safe. You need to hear it again. Take the gospel, for instance. You know, sometimes I think when somebody starts into the gospel, we kind of tune out a little bit, heard there, be, heard that, been there, done that. But you may have heard the gospel a thousand times, and you know what? We need to hear it a thousand more. Because the gospel is not just a been there, done that, I got that for my salvation. It is the motivation, it is the inspiration, the energy behind what we do as a Christian. It comes and undergirds everything about how we live and who we are in Christ. So we have to keep hearing that. Our prayer, my prayer as a preacher and a teacher is that when we hear the same thing over and over again, we don't become callous to it, but that actually the Holy Spirit makes alive to us what we may have heard before and applies it to our life in a new way maybe. That's the desire. And Paul says that, that's not grievous to me. That's actually safe and helpful for you. Now he says that in verse one because then he goes in verse two to this description of false teachers and a warning about their dangerous doctrines. And basically what he's saying in verse one is, I've told you about them before and I'm gonna tell you again. Parents, you ever say that? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. And that's what he's telling them here. Pay attention, this is important. I'm saying it now. I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. And then he goes into verse 2 here, a threefold description of false teachers. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Who are these people? Who is he referring to in this? Why the harsh, strong language pointed at these people? Well, broadly speaking, who he's referencing in verse 2 are false teachers who teach a false gospel as the real gospel. And he's saying, watch out for them. They teach a false gospel as the real gospel. And you can see here with the harsh descriptions that Paul used, false teachers were a serious problem. You can kind of see that they got under Paul's skin a little bit. We see another harsh wording as well in, in Galatians 1 verse 8, where Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's strong. Anybody comes along and preaches a false gospel as the real gospel, let them be accursed. Watch out for them, dogs, evil workers, the concision. Now, that's kind of broad. More narrowly, who Paul is referencing here, he's probably combating, as he was in Galatians, here in Philippi, he's also combating the false teachings of what we call the Judaizers. The Judaizers. 
You say, well, who in the world are the Judaizers? Well, here's the story. Here's the background. In the first chapters of Acts, if you remember that, the gospel goes out to the Jew first. See that in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then chapter 8 of Acts, it spreads to the Samaritans. Then in chapter 10, with the story of Peter and Cornelius, the sheet of animals coming down, kill and eat, Cornelius's men coming to Peter's house, remember that story? With chapter 10 of Acts, the gospel starts to spread to the Gentiles. Well, here's the problem that a lot of Jewish people, the Judaizers, had. When Gentiles started coming to faith, it caused a stir because the Gentiles were not adopting Jewish practices and Jewish law when they were coming to faith. So they were coming to faith in Christ without becoming Jewish. And to a lot of people, that was a problem. To the Jewish religious leaders, that was a problem because the Judaizers step in and they teach that in order to be truly saved, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the Sabbath rules and regulations. You have to tithe meticulously and all the other Jewish law. In order to be saved, you not only need Christ, you also need adherence to Jewish law and custom. Now, what would we call that? We would call it a works-based salvation. Because it's not believing in what Christ has done, it's, it's putting emphasis on what we do. Now, if the Judaizers taught Christ at all, they always taught Christ plus. Christ plus works. Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus Jewish law. Alistair Begg says, they were insisting on legal observance as a qualification for grace. What's wrong with that? If there is any qualification on grace, it is not grace. Can't be grace. It's not a free gift then. Now, this whole idea of the Judaizers requiring more than just Christ for salvation was the theme of what was called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you go back and look there, you have some, some people from either side, and the, the Apostle James, Jesus' half-brother, steps up, and they write a letter to other churches, and they settle this dispute. But that was what was being disputed. Here's the question at heart. Did Gentiles have to be circumcised and submit to Jewish law to be saved? That was the issue. Ju the Judaizers were saying, yes, they did. They do. On the other hand, Paul steps in. Paul starts to teach to the Gentiles, that salvation was in Christ and Christ alone, apart from works, apart from our ability. That rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. There were secular people in the world, the Romans, who hated Paul for what he preached. There were Jewish people who hated Paul for what he preached. But we see Paul's consistency with this. He shows up in Philippi, remember, and he preaches what? He preaches Christ to Lydia and the other women by the riverside. God opens Lydia's heart and she believes. To the Philippian jailer, remember, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just the Lord Jesus Christ, not, no, no Christ plus Jewish law, no Christ plus works. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Five verses later, Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in 
vain. So Paul has told the Philippians that. He's gone now, but he's probably heard that in the 10 years from when he was there in Acts 16 to when he writes Philippians, he probably has heard false teachers have come in. The Judaizers have come into Philippi and they've started to teach this false gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the Christ plus gospel. Now, it's true. You look at any, any of Paul's writings anywhere in scripture. He has to call out false teachers because anywhere Paul went, guess who else went there too? The false gospel went there as well. Do we not still see that today? Wherever the gospel goes, the false gospel goes along with it. Sometimes it's a gospel of harsh legalism. Sometimes it's a gospel of health and prosperity. No matter what it is, every false gospel, all false teachers preach salvation apart from Christ. Adding something to Christ. That's why Paul responds so harshly here. So strongly in verse 2. He says some things in verse 2. Beware of dogs. That wouldn't be politically correct. If Paul were to say these things today, his daytime television show would be canceled. It would be, they'd be done. Facebook would block him. Beware of dogs. Let's look at this list, this threefold description of false teachers. He says, beware of dogs. Now, now you can't have in mind the, the cute little cuddly man's best friend, right? That's not what he's meaning here. You know, little Fido with the cute bark and the fuzzy fur. Not what he has in mind. Dogs of that day, dogs were, were the filthy street creatures that scavenged for food. They returned, as Proverbs says, to their own vomit. That's disgusting. The mention, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, the mention of dogs is almost always negative. Almost always. The psalmist refers to his enemies as dogs. First and second Samuel, to call someone a dog meant you had no regard for them. First Kings, it is the dogs that come and eat Jezebel's body. So when Paul is saying this here, it's harsh. Now, why does he say it though? Because it was the Jews and especially the Jewish elite that always referred to the Gentiles as what? You see this come up in a story with Jesus. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, those filthy street creatures. No regard for them whatsoever. So when Paul calls the false teachers dogs, who are the ones that consider themselves the elite, do you see what he's doing? He's flipping it all on them. He's flipping their disregard for the Gentiles back upon their own heads. Paul was direct. It was even a little nasty, but it was appropriate. Why? Because they're messing with the gospel. And if you read scripture through the gospels and through Paul's preaching and teaching in the epistles that he wrote, you'll always see that Christ and Paul reserve their harshest rebukes for those who teach a false gospel and who lead people astray. It's true. They are harsh. They are direct towards those people. Look at the second thing he calls them. He says, beware of evil workers. Beware of evil workers. Now, the Judaizers, they would have considered that their good works or their, their 
their works for salvation, they would have considered those works as good works. But Paul says, no, they're, work, they're actually workers of evil because they try to please God apart from faith in Christ. The Judaizer would say, our works are good works. Paul says, no, you are workers of evil because it is works apart from faith. And what does Hebrews eleven six tell us about faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Good works become evil works when they are performed by the flesh apart from faith every time. So Paul says, watch out for these evil workers. They may look like good workers, but they are evil because they are apart from faith in Christ. Then he says this, this phrase, which is a little bit strange for us today. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Beware of the concision. What does that mean? Most translations translate this by the phrase mutilators of the flesh or the mutilation. You may have that in a, in a different translation. Mutilators of the flesh. Paul, by saying the concision or mutilators of the flesh, is referring to circumcision here, but he does not use the usual word for circumcision. So the usual word for circumcision is paratome. It's the word that you see just a couple words into verse 3, where he says, we are the circumcision. That's the normal word for circumcision. But here at the end of verse 2, he uses the word katatome, which means to mutilate or to cut off. And what Paul's doing here is a play on words. He's indicating that those who demand circumcision for salvation are not actually saving anyone they're only mutilating the flesh. Does that make sense? Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, we have to talk about circumcision here a little bit. Circumcision was a symbol given to Abraham for Israel, and it was the sign of the covenant. It was that God had, had made a covenant between himself and his people. But in the New Testament, things have changed because Christ is now on the scene. In the New Testament, physical circumcision is no longer a sign of that covenant. What's the sign of the covenant? Rather, it is belief in Christ that brings the circumcision of the heart. That now is the symbol that by which that faith in Christ, the circumcision of the heart, now a person enters into covenant faithfulness with God. So the Judaizers, on one hand, are demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved. They were circumcising the flesh, but they were missing what? The heart. So the Judaizers, their message is this, flesh, 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 do, do, do. Paul comes along and his teaching is spirit, 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 done, done, done by Christ. See the difference? If you go back and read Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, that tells us that, that what matters now is the inward circumcision of the heart through faith in Christ, not the outward sign of circumcision. The Judaizers had that twisted. Too caught up in the Jewish law that they'd always followed, not willing to see the heart that mattered. And that's why Paul then uses the word for circumcision. He uses the, the, the off word for circumcision in verse 2, but then he uses the usual word for circumcision in verse 3. 
In verse 3, we see a little bit of a pivot here. Verse 2 was this description of false teachers. In verse 3, we see a fourfold description of the Christian. And the first way he describes the Christian, the believer in Christ, he says, for we are the circumcision. Unlike those that just mutilate the flesh, we are the circumcision. In other words, the true circumcision. What's the difference? Those who have trusted in Christ are the true group of covenant people because their heart has been cleansed. Their heart has been circumcised and not just the body. That's the difference. John MacArthur says, true believers don't just have a symbol of the need for a clean heart. They have actually been cleansed in the heart. The outward symbol is nothing without the inward reality. So here's the Judaizers telling the Gentiles to put their confidence in their own ability, in a work that they do, whether circumcision, tithing, law-keeping, Sabbath, whatever it might be. Whereas Paul comes along and he says, no, true, the true circumcision or true Christians put their confidence in what Christ has done in the heart. That's the difference. Now, he describes the Christian in a couple other ways, too. Look at verse 3. We are the true circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit. There's another description of the Christian. We worship God in the Spirit. Now, some commentators take that as a little s spirit, that, that our spirit worships God rightly, as we see in John 4, 24. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Some commentators take that as a capital S spirit, that by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we worship God. Both are true. Both there are true. Our spirit should be led by the Spirit to worship God rightly, and without the work of the Holy Spirit, we won't please God. So both of those, the point of this is that one of the marks of a true believer, those who are circumcised in the heart, is that they will cultivate worship of God. You don't see that from the unbeliever. That's a mark of the true believer is that they will worship God. Then he describes them as people who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's one of the ways we worship God. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. The word for rejoice here means to boast with exultant joy. We all want to boast, don't we? We all want to say, I can or this or that or whatever it is. We want to boast in something. You want to boast? Boast in Christ. You want to boast? Boast in Christ. 1 Corinthians 131, right here behind us. It says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ. That's a mark of the Christian. And then the last one in verse 3, he says, they have no confidence in the flesh. This is a big difference between a true believer and a works-based false believer. Because those who try to earn salvation like the Judaizers, what the Judaizers taught, they have confidence in their own ability, their own good works to save them. Paul says a true Christian, he does not have confidence in himself. The Judaizer, the works-based false believer, they, they trust in their flesh, who they are, what they can do, the family they were born to, what they have, what they can offer to society. Paul says no. Those who trust in Christ do not have confidence in their own flesh. By God's grace, they know they need a Savior outside of themselves. That's all of us. 
Then let's close with verses four, five, and six here. A sevenfold description of false confidence. Look at what verse uh, four says. Paul says here, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. What's he saying? He says, you think your puny little attempts at goodness will save you? Look at all that I did, and I couldn't even earn right standing with God. That's what he's saying. You think you've got confidence in your flesh? Look, at, let me show you everything that I've done, and I still didn't have enough goodness in me to earn right standing with God. Paul says, I had more fleshly goodness than anyone else, and I was still more lost than a pagan. He was better than Mother Teresa, and he was more lost than Adolf Hitler. Basically what he's saying. It doesn't work. And he says, I'll tell you how it doesn't work. Look at all the good things I had. And he shows us in the first part of verse 5 who he was. Who he was. Number one, circumcised the eighth day. That's exactly as God prescribed it to happen. To Abraham in Genesis 17. Male children, circumcised, eighth day. Paul says, I'm genuine. I'm not a proselyte. I did what we're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. As far as ritual goes, that box, it's got a check on it. I did that. Do we often trust in our ritual? A lot of people do. A lot of false religions trust in the ritual of their religion. We could even go so far as to say the ritual of church. Do we trust in that to save us? He says next, he says, I was of the stock of Israel. Paul had a pure heritage. He wasn't all messed up like everybody else. His lineage, his heritage was pure. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's something a lot of Jewish people can't necessarily do trace back their lineage to what tribe they're in. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin was no just nothing tribe. It was a, an elite tribe. It was a respected tribe. It'd be like one of us coming along and say, I am of the family of the Rockefellers, right? Respected, elite. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob to be born in Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was, the, was one of them that stayed loyal to David during Absalom's rebellion. They stayed loyal to the Davidic dynasty during the uh, separation of the kingdoms. Jerusalem, the capital city, is inside the, the borders of the tribe of Benjamin. And think about Paul. What was his name initially? Saul, probably named for the first king of Israel, who was also of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. So Paul says, as family heritage goes, I've got it. If family heritage could save me, it would have saved me. But you know what? No one has been saved by being a Jew. Not one. Because salvation has not come by being a son of David, but in trusting David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Salvation does not come by being raised a Christian. I think a lot of people think, well, I kind of get a free pass. It's just kind of how I've always been, Christian. Your heritage cannot save you. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ. He says next in verse 5, I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
Now, we call Saul, Saul of, do you remember? Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. So Paul says here, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, even though he grew up in Tarsus, which was a non-Jewish city. What he's saying is he maintained the language and the culture and the traditions of Judaism. He was Hebrew through and through. He was traditional Hebrew. But tradition doesn't save. Tradition never has saved. It never will save. Are you traditional? You know, that's, that's kind of a term we throw around in conservative circles oftentimes, isn't it? We're traditional. Be careful, though. Be careful about boasting and being traditional if your traditionalism is based on man's opinions and not rooted in faith in Christ. Tradition didn't save Paul. Tradition doesn't save us. Christ saves. This phrase, Hebrew of the Hebrews, might be also another way of saying the best of the best, right? Because I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. There are a lot of good Hebrews. I was even above them. I was the best of the best. You ever get those credit card advertisements in the mail, right? And it offers you like the gold level or the, I don't even know what they're on now. It's like ruby and then platinum and then diamond and whatever. They always make it want to sound like you. If you have this card, you will be the best of the best. You will be platinum level. Whatever that was for Paul, he was it. He was platinum level Jew. He was the best of the best. And it still wasn't enough. So those four things tell us who he was. These next three things show us what he's done. Paul says, look at these things that I've done. And even that wasn't enough. Number one, he says, I was moral. Right at the end of verse five, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Probably came from a line of Pharisees. His dad was probably a Pharisee. His grandpa was probably a Pharisee. He knew what it took to be a Pharisee and to be a good one. Pharisees were some of the cream of the crop of Jewish religion, too. They were the legalistic fundamentalists of their day. They were moral concerning the law. Yet how many times did Jesus say they were immoral concerning the heart? Paul says, I was moral. I kept the law. And it wasn't enough. Be careful. Be careful of trusting your own morality to either get or to prove your salvation. We do that sometimes, I think. Of course I'm saved. Look at this laundry list of good things that I do. Be careful of trusting your own morality to get or to prove your salvation. If your confidence and assurance of your salvation is in your own morality, then your confidence is wrong. It's off. Verse six, he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Not only was he moral, he says, I was zealous. I was zealous. Zeal was one of the highest virtues of Jewish religion, and Paul had it in spades. His zeal for Judaism meant that he loved Judaism, and he hated anything that opposed it. Well, what do we know about Paul and his, his life before Christ? His hatred, his zeal for Judaism meant hatred for anything that opposed it, and he viciously persecuted Christians. Acts 8, Acts 9. His zeal for Judaism was unmatched. Paul says if anybody could get a pass because of their intensity of how much they believed something, that was me, and I proved it. 
And even that wasn't enough. <clears throat> I want to take a little aside right here and just a, a mini lesson in the middle of this. Do you remember when God got a hold of, of Saul on the Damascus road and his life changed, Acts 9? Before salvation, or notice, what, notice what God did there. He did not, on the Damascus road, he did not take away Paul's zeal. He redirected it towards preaching the gospel. This is important because the same tenacity that Paul had for Judaism before salvation is the same tenacity that he had for the gospel after salvation. Here's the lesson. When Christ saves you, he does not make you into someone else. He makes you a redeemed version of who God has made you. Make sense? He takes your skill set, your gifts, and your personality, and now he directs it towards righteousness instead of unrighteousness. He didn't make Paul someone else. He remade him a redeemed version of the tenacity and zeal that he had. The other part of it is this. Be cautious of trusting your passion for something to save you. You've heard somebody say that? Well, they're a person of faith or they're really sincere. You know, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. Passion for something does not save us. Christ saves. End of verse 5, excuse me, verse 6. He says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I knew the law. I kept the law. I observed the Sabbath faithfully. I tithe meticulously. I abstained from meat offered to idols religiously. Paul says, if there was a Pharisee hall of fame, I was in it. And yet it didn't save me. Couldn't save me. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Yet he was the type of person that Jesus referred to in Luke eleven forty two, 42. And he said this, talking to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and you pass by justice and the love of God. You've done things so meticulously. Yet you missed the point. You have counted every tree and missed the fact that you're standing in a forest. Paul gives us this list here and he says, look, people, I've been there. I've tried that. Confidence in the flesh doesn't work because I could have more confidence than any one of you and it still wasn't enough. If anyone could have confidence in themselves, it was Paul, and yet still Paul could not come out on top. It didn't work for even him. Warren Wearsby said this. This is good. Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. It was not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was good things. He had to lose his religion to find salvation. That's powerful. What he had to do is he had to stop having confidence in the flesh, in himself. So I ask you this morning, where is your confidence? What is it that you trust? Who do you trust? What do you put your confidence in for your salvation? Is it the Christian family that you were raised in? 
Is that your confidence? Is it some good things that you've done throughout your life? Be cautious. Be cautious of the tyranny of the good person. So what do you mean? You know, we get casual with Christ because someone is a nice person. Do we not? Like, like they don't need Christ as much because they're just a nice person. He's a good guy. He'll do anything for you. Does he trust Christ? Because that's what matters. Be cautious of the tyranny of the good person. What do you trust? Where's your confidence? Someone told me this once, that they knew they were saved because they saw a vision of their dad in the corner of their room and he told them they were okay. Do you trust something like that? Do you trust a date written in your Bible that says you prayed a prayer? Be cautious of the tyranny of the professing Christian as well. A profession of faith means little without a practice of faith. Be careful of, of a testimony of yourself or someone else that'll say, well, yes, 30 years ago, I prayed a prayer and I have it written down right here. What's your confidence in? The memory of that event and not Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. If it was then, it is still today. Do you trust the morality of your traditions? You don't smoke, drink, and chew or go with girls that do? I'm a good person. I, I'm moral. Of course I'm fine. Or do you trust Christ? For you, is it Christ with me? Christ before me? Christ in me? Christ on my right? Christ on my left? Christ when I lie down? Christ when I arise? Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Is that your confidence? It's the only thing we can be confident in. Where's your confidence? Yourself or Christ? The song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And the last verse says this, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All things through Christ.